One of the great joys of Scripture is how God uses different personalities to bring about His Word. Last week, we looked at the prophet Haggai as we are thinking about the promise of Jesus coming to marveling at the mystery made known. Now, Haggai was a straightforward kind of guy, a plain-spoken fellow who said, why do you live in your paneled houses when all the time the house of the Lord lies desolate? You know, he's very straight and pointed that way. This morning, we're going to look at a contemporary of Haggai, that is, he lived and prophesied at almost exactly the same time and in the same place in Jerusalem as Haggai, only this man, Zechariah, is not an engineer. He is an artist. And like many artists, there's a subtlety to what he does, a complexity to what he does that will mystify us. Uh, I do not anticipate that everything that I say this morning, you're going to go, oh man, that's clear as day. Uh, some of that is my failure at communication. But it's also true that Zechariah is an artist. And artists have subtleties and things that are somewhat remarkable and amazing, all of it being the Word of God. And so this morning, since Zechariah is an artist, I thought I would start here at the Sistine Chapel. This is the great work by Michelangelo. Uh, by the way, if you've ever heard that he was laying flat on his back while he did it, not true, didn't do that. He did nearly mess up his neck permanently for that, but he was doing it like this, standing up. But uh, when you walk into the Sistine Chapel today, you will walk in from the left. And as you walk in, um, let's, let me do it the right way. You walk in this way, you're just like amazed at this whole big thing and you try to find some of the scenes that you're familiar with like God touching Adam and all of that and that's right there in the middle. And, uh, and you completely miss, you completely miss the circled one at the other end. You know why? Because you're in this big massive crowd and you're doing this and maybe you're with a group and the group's talking to your ear thing and all of that and then you make your way out and you don't look in the middle on the end. Now, that's not how Michelangelo did the Sistine Chapel. He did the Sistine Chapel so that you entered this way and the first thing you saw, in fact, it may well be the first thing that he painted, is the prophet Zechariah. He painted seven prophets in the Sistine Chapel, but Zechariah has this place of prominence right at the entrance. Uh, the, uh, interestingly, he paints him as an old man with a long beard and this green cloak, uh, perhaps indicative of the depth of his prophecies. And it may be that he's uh, an old man reading from his book that he had written many years before. Um, there's all kinds of analysis that goes on there, even though every tradition suggests that Zechariah was a young man when he made his prophecies. Um, the point is that of the 
all the possible prophets that, that Michelangelo could have chosen, and he did paint seven of them in the Sistine Chapel, Zechariah has this place of prominence. It's likely because in the Middle Ages, um, Zechariah held a higher degree of prominence in people's minds than he does today. Uh, some of you may know the word Zechariah, but you may never have read anything in his prophecy. Uh, it's just not something that every day he's in the top 10 of Christian conversation, right? Um, Zechariah foretold the entry into Jerusalem, for example, and it's very possible that because of these prophecies about Jesus that Michelangelo would choose to place him directly over one of the entrances into the chapel. Uh, chapters 9 to 14 of Zechariah is the most quoted of all the prophets in the passion narratives of the Gospels. That is, the, the writings in the Gospels about Jesus' death, there's more quotation from Zechariah than from any place else. And if you read Zechariah and you at the same time read Revelation, you will see that there are many things about the imagery in Revelation that John is using that comes from the prophet Zechariah. Um, I invite you to open your Bibles there. If you don't know where it is, just go to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and flip back two books. It's the next to last book in the Old Testament is Zechariah. We're going to make our way through this book today, and the first thing that we want to do is to set him in history. So here's a timeline that gives us the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the decree of Cyrus in 539 for the Jews to return and rebuild, and Zerubbabel does that and leaves with 50,000 people. The foundation of the temple is laid, and then there's a, there's a period of time of about 10 years where the, the temple rebuilding is stopped. And about 520 BC, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come at almost exactly the same time. For example, chapter 1, verse 1 of Zechariah is just weeks after Haggai prophesies. And then uh, a little later in chapter 1, verse 7, there's a reference to a, a time three months after Haggai's last prophecy. So they overlap. Their ministries overlap in the same time in the same place. And it's all about getting this rebuilding of the temple started again. It had stopped and now it's being allowed to be rebuilt, but the people aren't doing it. And so these prophets come along to say, hey, let's get going on this project. You have uh, Ezra speaking at the same time in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. In fact, chap Ezra chapter 4 is a description of the uh, halting of the process. We'll look at that in a little bit on another timeline. And then a little later on here in these weeks of Advent, we will see the uh, Nehemiah's ministry and then we'll wrap up with Malachi's. Here's a briefer timeline that cuts it in a little closer where you see the decree to return and 50,000 return under Zerubbabel. And then Ezra 4 verses 5 and 24 where it says that the temple rebuilding is stopped. Then Haggai and Zechariah, you see him in the red box there to 
point him out. Prophesy as Darius issues the decree to rebuild. That's Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. And about five years later, the temple is finally rebuilt. So this gives you a kind of a historical picture of where Zechariah's place is in history. He's prophesying during the reign of Darius the Great, okay, at the early part of his reign. Now, one of the things that we need to think about as we think about um, Zechariah is how his prophecy is organized. When we organize something when we're writing, we typically use an outline, don't we? Roman numeral one, A, B, C, Roman numeral two, A, B, C, and so forth. Uh, That is not how the artist does it. Now, he uses a plan of organization which was fairly common among the Hebrews, which is to organize things around the first thing you talk about and the last thing you talk about are connected and the second to first things, the second thing you talk about is the, next to, is the same as the next to last thing you talk about and so on. It's like this, a Russian doll. His organization is the first thing you do, uh, talk about, and it's related to the last thing you do. And then the next thing you talk about is related to the second to last thing. And, well, you get the idea, right? I don't need to undo the whole Russian doll for you. Although my grandchildren would really like that part of the sermon. Um, And Zechariah, believe it or not, does this four times in this book. He has these Russian dolls that he sets forth as his organizing principle. And we'll see that uh, as we make our way through. I won't go and point it all out to you because frankly to do that would would take longer than I have for this message. Um, Zechariah also dates his message so that it's just weeks after Haggai, here in chapter one, verse one, just weeks after Haggai chapter two, verse one, and then there's another date in chapter one, verse seven, and then there's another date in chapter seven, verse one, all of them related to this same period of time about urging people to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So Haggai begins, or excuse me, Zechariah begins in chapter one, verses one to six, with this call to return. Look at verse two. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. That's obvious, right? They're carried off into captivity. Therefore, say to them, declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers. This call to return. This doesn't just mean physically return. It means in every way return to the Lord of hosts. And you remember last week I told you that Haggai uses that phrase Lord of hosts 14 times. This is a phrase that's used in Zechariah. It was a common phrase contemporary with these guys to talk about the Lord as the Lord of the armies of heaven. And he's calling on the people with all their hearts to return to the Lord. Now, why is Zechariah prophesying? 
Well, he wants to point out the value of the rebuilt temple. He wants to talk about the value of a future Davidic king. There's a king that's coming. It's going to be the king over everything. He wants to talk about the value of Zion as God's dwelling place forever. There's a special place in God's heart for Jerusalem. He wants to talk about the vindication of God before the nations of the world, that the nations of the world are raging against God, and Zechariah is there to proclaim, God wins. There's the value of revival, of the importance of God's covenant, that God's made a covenant that is inviolable with his people. And then there is the hopes of God's eternal kingdom that are somehow connected to a rebuilt temple. The same thing that we saw in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, we see in Zechariah 6, 9 to 15. And then, of course, all through this book, we see a longing and a hope for a Messiah, a king who will come, who will set everything straight. While we're looking for that, we're going to see horrors as well. The horrors of judgment cosmic changes that are all designed to bring in the kingdom of God. So this is part of this call to return. Now, the first of these little Russian dolls that Zechariah presents to us is in chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 6, where we see the visions of Israel the kingdoms of this world, and the kingdom of God. We see the submission of the nations, chapter 1, verse 21. We see the exaltation of Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 17. We see someone called the branch in chapter 3, verse 8, and in chapter 6, verse 12, uh, a branch Now, remember, we see near and far fulfillments here. So, for example, in chapter 6, you see this branch being referred to as Joshua the high priest, but there's a farther fulfillment that happens only through Jesus Christ. And in some many cases, the prophecy has already been fulfilled from our viewpoint, but in other cases, the prophecy is yet to come even from where we stand, right? It's a future prophecy of Jesus. Then there's all sorts of apocalyptic symbolism. Just like in Revelation, you have these various features that demonstrate the idea that Zechariah isn't just talking about his own time and setting, he's speaking cosmically about how the world is going to end. And so you have symbolism like horses, and horns, and numbers, and measure the city, and lampstand, and two olive trees, and two lampstands, and a woman of wickedness, and seven eyes, and an earthquake, and a miraculous intervention of the Lord, and a final battle, and God's deliverance of Jerusalem, and bitter mourning, but ultimate joy. All those things that you see in Revelation are right there in Zechariah. And so, there are these eight visions. And you remember, he's speaking like a Russian doll, so the first vision will relate to the eighth vision, and the second vision will relate to the seventh, and the third to the fifth, the sixth, and the, 
and the fourth and the fifth. And usually when Hebrew writers write like that, the goal is to point your attention to the thing in the middle, to that smallest Russian doll, to look at that. So, for example, in chapter 1, verses 7 to 17, you have a vision of a horseman, the promise of justice and renewal for Jerusalem because the Lord remembers. <clears throat> in chapter 6, you have the vision of four chariots, <clears throat> which is also judgment over the whole earth, followed by a priest who's called the branch. The second vision is in chapter 1, verse 18, where there is a vision of, a, of horns, the horns destroyed, that destroyed and scattered Jerusalem, but those same horns will be destroyed themselves. In chapter 5, you have the vision of the woman in a basket, the basket of sin with wickedness sitting in the basket of sin. It's the sin of Judah being carried off to Babylon in captivity that's a reminder that God will always remove sin and sinfulness. In chapter 2, you have the third vision, the man with a measuring line. Jerusalem is the apple of God's eye, and the nations that plundered her will themselves be plundered. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, you have the vision of the flying scroll, the curse on the planet. And then we come to the central visions, the visions of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Chapter 3 is the fourth vision, the spiritual dimension of the restoration of Jerusalem. Joshua, the high priest, has clothes that are destroyed, symbolic of iniquity removed, and God clothes them with pure clothing, and that happens through a deliverer called the branch, who, it says, removes sin in a single day. Who might that be a reference to? Who would remove sin in a single day? Chapter 4 is the lampstand with the two olive trees. A small beginning that brings glory through the Spirit of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. It says, the, he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 10 for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And you see that same imagery in Revelation chapter 1. The idea is that there's this small beginning of the rebuilt temple. You remember in, in both Ezra and Haggai, there were people that go, yeah, this wasn't very big. This isn't a very big deal at all. I saw the former glory of the temple. But here in Zechariah you have, don't, don't despise this because God is at work and he's going to accomplish something unbelievable, glory through the Spirit of God. And so what you have here is visions of Israel, of the kingdoms of this world, and of the kingdom of God. Now in chapter 7 and 8, you have yet another, a second one of these Russian dolls, the ethics of restored Israel. Uh, Israel had an ethical system that came through the law of Moses, and now it's being restored only to its fullest joy 
the ethics of restored Israel. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 14 is a call to justice and mercy. Though Judah had severely disobeyed, they're called to a new ethic, which was really the old ethic. If you look at chapter 7, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in, the, in your heart. But they refused to pay attention, turned a stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And so he's describing what had happened, but now there's coming a time when there's going to be a restoration of this, of this ethic. And we see it in chapter 8, the beauty of the restored city. Verses 3 through 8 of chapter 8 talk about the faithful city of Jerusalem. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, I've returned to Zion, will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem should be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Now, to be sure, there was a minor fulfillment of that in the days of Zechariah when there were these great men. There, were, there was Ezra and there was Zerubbabel uh, ministering. There was Zechariah and Haggai. There was Joshua the high priest. We'll talk about him. And these five men all serving the Lord in Jerusalem at this time. There was a way in which this was fulfilled in a near way, but there's no way this can be speaking of that time. There is a time that's yet future when God will bring complete peace and restoration to the faithful city of Jerusalem. There's a sowing of peace and of salvation, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 8. And there's this call to the restored ethic in 16 and 17. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oaths. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. In fact, the great commission of Israel will be restored. I've talked about this several times, that our great commission is to go out into the world and tell everybody about Jesus, right? The great commission for Israel was to live out a life so honorably and worthy and close to the Lord that you say to the nations, come, come and see Come and see our God, that he may be your God. And look at chapter 8, verses 20 and 23, and see this, this call to Israel to its commission of come and see. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. 
the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, listen to this, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. Such will be the hunger for the Lord that people will grab the robe of Jew. We got to go with you. <laughs> we got to be part of this great thing. Amazing come and see ministry of the restored city. The ethics of restored Israel. Now in chapters 9 to 14, we have two prophecies that point to the marvel of Christ's coming. Two prophecies that point to the marvel of Christ's coming. And each prophecy is organized like the Russian doll, right? So the first prophecy is in chapter 9 through 11. Chapter 9 through 11, and we know that it begins because it says so in chapter 9, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord. If you go to chapter 12, verse 1, you'll see the oracle of the word of the Lord. So it separates them into two different prophecies. The first one, the first prophecy is about the coming king. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 is about the judgment on Israel's enemies. And then you have a description of the king. Chapter 9, verse 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now that's a prediction. That's a prediction of the coming king and the triumphal entry. In chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. We have this beautiful picture of the salvation of God. Look at verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. And if you're ever going to memorize anything out of Zechariah, memorize the first couple lines of verse 17. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. The Lord saves. And the whole point of the coming of the Messiah is so that people will say, how great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. In fact, the way I've said it is that the entire message of the Bible is to say that God is a work at work among people to demonstrate that he alone is qualified to build his kingdom. And when people see God in his kingdom, they will worship. How great is his goodness. How great his beauty. Now, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, you have this description of people scattered from all over coming back, the diaspora of Jews Return, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. With their children they shall live and return. Talking about all the places that they bring them from. In chapter 11, 
verses 12 to 14, you have a parable, a parable of betrayal. Look at chapter 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. If not, keep them. They weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. A parable of betrayal that in fact predicts Jesus' betrayal. And then there is the setting up of a false shepherd that comes. Verse 16, behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. What we have here in an artistic form, okay, an artistic format, is a picture of the prophetic calendar that Jesus comes, he is killed, he rises again, And then there comes a time, somewhat later, when there is a great tribulation, a great time of judgment on the earth, but particularly on Israel. And then there comes a time of the millennial reign of Jesus, where he rules and reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years, before finally there is one last great titanic battle over which the Lord Jesus triumphs by the breath of his mouth, And we are with the Lord forever. So the second prophecy is about that deep tribulation of the nation followed by Messiah's rescue. Look at chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone For all the peoples, all who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. That may have been fulfilled in some minor way early, but the ultimate is in the tribulation, right? There is the work of rescue. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day will be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, the Lord says, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, (laughs) please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What's going to happen? is that in this time of great trouble and persecution, Israel is finally going to get it. They're going to realize what they've done. We killed the Messiah. And they will mourn over him. And they will come to him. And notice what happens as a result. A fountain of forgiveness opens. Chapter 13, verse 1. 
On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins that sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Wicked spirituality is cut off. Chapter 13, verse 2, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Also, I'll remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. In fact, if you want to look at the center point of this Russian doll, it's that, that wicked spirituality is cut off. The suffering of tribulation is followed by people calling on the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 8 and 9. There'll be a final battle against the Lord and against his people. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. I'll gather all the nations, verse, chapter 14, verse 2. Against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken. Houses plundered, women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile. The rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And the physical nature of the land itself will be transformed. Verse 4, on that day, his feet, Messiah's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And then there is the crowning of the Lord as king. Look at verses 6 to 9. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, a continual just abundance of water. And the Lord, look at verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The marvel of his coming. Now, in these chapters, 9 to 14, we see many ways in which Zechariah predicts the person, the life, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He reveals his kingship. He reveals Jesus' kingship. Chapter 9, verse 9, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You see, Matthew got it. He understood the artistry of Zechariah. The life, person, and ministry of Jesus Christ. He restores Israel by the blood of his covenant. Chapter 9, verse 11, For you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And we read in Mark 14, 24, He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. 
Jesus serves as shepherd and king to a scattered, afflicted people. Chapter 10, verse 2, the household gods utter nonsense. The diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Zechariah 13, 7, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Matthew notes, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus is betrayed for a payment of silver, just as is described in Zechariah chapter 11. He's pierced and struck down, just as predicted in Zechariah chapter 10, or chapter 12, verse 10. They will look on me on whom they have pierced. They'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. John 19.37, again the scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah predicts the returning in glory and delivering of Israel from all of her enemies Chapter 14, 1 through 6, with that description of the Mount of Olives split in two. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Zechariah predicts a rule as king in peace and righteousness in Jerusalem says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall come up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feast of booths. And in Revelation 11, we read, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever. Revelation 19.6, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And so we see through these four scenes of Russian dolls, Zechariah in prophesying in this moment, calling on the people of Israel to begin their process of rebuilding the temple again, something way bigger than that. The pointing to the Messiah, Jesus, who will rule and reign forever. Now you might ask the question, so what? I'm tired of hearing about Russian dolls. So what? Let me give you three things to take away. Number one, if you have never put your faith and hope in Christ, understand this from the prophet Zechariah. 
He is promising that there is a time of trouble coming from which you cannot escape on your own that will result not only in utter destruction, but eternal separation from God. On the other hand, God's goodness is so great and his mercy so wonderful that though you yourself cannot escape that judgment to come, Jesus, the Messiah, has paid the price for you. And all you need to do is to repent and turn to him. Look to Jesus and what he did at the cross. And his blood will forgive you of all your sins. Now, this deal looks so evident, self-evident to me that I think, why can't everybody just accept this free offer of salvation? And really, as I think about it, there's really only one big reason. There's a whole bunch of tiny reasons underneath it, but there's one big reason that keeps people from doing this. Pride. They think that they're okay on their own. You know, I think it's gonna all work out for me we reason. I think that it's all going to be just fine. I think that somehow it's all going to turn out in the wash, somehow. Or, you know, I've believed this way for so long, I'm really not going to monkey around with thinking about change. My friends, I urge you, death is real and hell is real. God is real, Christ's sacrifice is real, and whoever calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. But whoever does not believe, the Apostle John has it this way, will not see life, for the wrath of God will abide on that person. So turn to Christ today first application from Zechariah. Second application is kind of a two-parter. Something that believers should think about. What is it that God is calling me to do right now that in eternity I won't be able to do? What is God calling me to do right now that in eternity I won't be able to do? Because Whatever those things are, I ought to be doing them right now, right? Because I won't be doing them in eternity. And there's two things that I can think of. One is the sharing of your time and your treasure. The sharing of your time and your treasure. The giving of your time and your treasure to the Lord's work. There's going to come a time when you will not have that privilege, of giving of your time and your treasure to the Lord's work. It's all over. It's all done. And may I just say, I think that there will be no one in heaven who will say, you know what? I just gave too much to God's work. I just gave too much money. I gave too much time. I gave too much of my talents for the Lord's work. On the contrary... I believe that every one of us will say something like this. Ah, if I had only seen the Lord's beauty and goodness like this, 
I wish I had given him more. And then the second kind of part to that application that God calls us right now is to share the hope that we have in Christ with others. We will not be able to do that in eternity. That's all done. And so in this Christmas season, take out a three-by-five card and write down the names of some people that you particularly want them to come to know Christ. Maybe send them a Christmas card and use some of the tracks. There's amazingly good gospel literature in our long hallway. Take some of those and mail them to people and just say, hey, Merry Christmas. I'd be interested if you would read this. It kind of describes my heart for what Christmas is all about. And I'd love to get together with you sometime and, and talk about it if we might. Just to, just to have a conversation. And to take those and hand them out to people, strangers and friends and family members, to be much more bold about telling people about Jesus. Because I will guarantee you in heaven, we will say, if the Lord doesn't just wipe away this longing in our hearts, we will say, I wish I'd told more people. So those are the ways in which I think we can take the message of Zechariah and apply them to our own hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of anyone here who's never put their faith in Christ, that they would see, look on the one whom they've pierced, our rebellion, put Jesus on the cross, and that we would look on Jesus and find the forgiveness that's available there, that people would say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. I, I trust what you did to forgive me of my sin. I, I turn from my sin, I turn to you in faith believing in you and in your finished work at the cross. Grant to me that eternal life you promise out of your goodness and beauty. And now, Lord, for those of us who know the, know the Savior, we would ask that you would give us hearts that are generous, generous in the sharing of our time and treasure, and generous in the sharing of the gospel with people who need to hear it. May we look on this world with the deepest of compassion, not with self-satisfied judgment, but with the deepest of compassion, longing that everyone might come to know our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.